Now we're going to start with our first speaker, Dr. Robert Sidbury. He uh, got his undergraduate and medical degrees from Duke University and his master's in public health from Harvard. Uh, he did his internship residency at UCSF and Oregon Health and Science University and completed a fellowship uh, at Northwestern University and Harvard. He has faculty positions at Harvard Medical School, University of Washington School of Medicine, where he's an associate professor in the de uh, Department of Pediatrics and chief of the Division of Dermatology. Uh, his clinical and research interests are atopic derm, vascular tumors of in infancy, uh, vitamin D, and pediatric health issues. He likes, uh, outside of work, uh, playing with his six-year-old daughter, Claire. So please welcome Dr. Sidbury. Thanks, Lauren, and thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am one of the local folks, so didn't have to travel too far. And uh, my talk today, let's see if I can get that up there, is going to be about uh, Pediatric derm, purely. I do not see adults, and that's one of my disclosures because it's going to affect a little bit uh, the sorts of things I say. I talk, talk about steroid safety. Well, that may differ a little bit from adults to children. So bear in mind as we go through uh, that my message is pitched entirely to children. Other disclosures, I am an investigator on a hemangel trial that's looking at the role of propranolol for hemangiomas, and I will talk about that because it's probably the most exciting development in pediatric dermatology since I've been doing this. So I think we'd re be remiss in not talking about it. I hope my participation as an investigator, I receive no uh, compensation uh, personally for being in this study, does not bias my message at all. The last bullet point there, most of my patients are of limited means, uh, may bias my message. One of the things I'll also talk about, if you guys see patients with atopic dermatitis, you're aware of the new barrier creams, uh, the expensive new barrier creams and uh, most of my patients can't afford it, so it takes a lot to get me to uh, prescribe those. Let's see if we can go forward here. What we're gonna talk about, the kind of point to this discussion is to try and glean pearls from the last year in the literature. You guys have a meeting every year. Um, you're gonna get updated on a fairly regular basis, so I don't want to cover things that uh, you've covered a year or two years ago. So what I've tried to do is pick papers from the last year, and there are many to pick from. Choose ones that address a message that you're likely to deal with on a daily basis in your clinics. So something that's hopefully going to potentially change the way you practice, if it's something you're not already aware of. In terms of the things we'll cover, we'll cover drugs and their uh, uses and abuses, atopic dermatitis, infections, and the like. I will say that uh, Lauren was not kidding when she ordered up good weather. Um, it's a lie, pure and simple. Uh, this is not Seattle weather. But you do owe her a debt of gratitude for having the wisdom to choose your meeting to occur in July, because that increases your odds immensely. And because of that, I figured before we get going, since this is the first talk in this uh, uh, three-day meeting, we would maybe start with just a few cases that have a summertime connection. This is the first one. This is a 12-year-old boy with uh, bilateral anterior thigh rash of one-week duration. Uh, I saw this patient when I was in Boston and was called by the pediatrician uh, as a STAT consult. Um, and as a dermatologist, that always gets my attention. Uh, my friends who are not in dermatology call that an oxymoron, but I object to that. Uh, but we were contacted about this patient because of this uh, net-like rash on the thighs. Bilateral thighs had been there about a week. This was summertime. Uh, and uh, we called this child over and saw him and saw this. You just see one thigh. But he had the same exact rash on both thighs. And his favorite hobby was, you saw the flash a moment ago, 
playing video games since he's out of school for six hours a day on his laptop, which is essentially like putting a heating pad on your lap for six hours a day. So this is what's called laptop erythema ab igni. And it is a useful thing to know about because a lividoid, uh, net-like reticulate rash, like the first thing we're gonna talk about when we get into our cases uh, of, of medication use, can trigger a pretty significant workup, a vasculitis workup. And you see this, you see this pigment, uh, you ask the question, you find something, a recurrent heat source, and right there, you've got your answer. Uh, the heat causes uh, loss of, uh, of uh, uh, dropout of the, the melanin in the skin, leading to this vascular net-like pattern of hyperpigmentation that sometimes can be quite red like this. The name erythema abigni is basically redness or heat without fire, so it's not warm, it's just red, or more commonly, it's just hyperpigmented. And this is a patient that you would more typically see in the hospital who's ill and who uses a heating pad constantly on this area on their abdomen, and you get that net-like hyperpigmented appearance. So that's a useful thing to keep in mind. The second case that we'll review is this four-year-old girl with a linear, irregular, bruise-like patches on one leg. Again, this is the summertime. This is a child who'd been going to the swimming pool. And mom said that she noticed this a day after she'd been to the swimming pool, and it started actually looking more like redness and blisters and now looks more like these linear, irregular uh, bruises, which as a dermatologist, I would call an outside job. It doesn't look like something that's endogenous and coming from the inside. It looks like some sort of outside job. Uh, and this is a really important thing as well. Uh, in the previous case, we talked about triggering a vasculitis workup. You see a child with bruises that look like an outside job, you darn well better think about non-accidental trauma and at least have that cross your mind. Another incredibly wrenching evaluation if, uh, if it needs to be done. On the other hand, you ask this child what her favorite drink is, and it's lime juice. And this is a child who's been playing with lime juice in the sun and got phytophotodermatitis, phytoplant photolight dermatitis inflammation. And this was first described in Mexican bartenders who were making martinis or making daiquiris uh, and margaritas on the beach and got lime juice on their hands and then blisters on their hands. But really the reason I wanted to bring this up apart from the summertime connection is think about a parent who has lime juice on their hands. They're in the summer. They pick up their child, the handprint on the back, then blisters or then becomes a bruise. And you very well should be thinking about abuse when it may be a much more benign cause. So it's a nice thing to keep in the differential of non-accidental trauma. And then the last case before we start talking about the literature this past year is a 35-year-old male with a pattern pyritic eruption around the bicep. And the foolish choice he made was, yes, that is me, and the foolish choice I made was getting a henna tattoo while visiting Africa in the summer. And henna tattoos are on all the street fairs in the summertime. I promise you, you will see this. It's usually not to the henna, it's to the PPD, which allows the fixation of the henna to occur in a much more rapid time so they can get turnover and get their next customer in. Uh, and the good thing about being a dermatologist is if you get a rash, you patch test yourself and publish it. <laughs> so let's move on to the literature. This past year, um, what about lipid screening? Just out of curiosity, how many of you, when you get lipid screening, whether it's a patient on Accutane or isotretinoin, probably we should use that term instead, how many of you insist that they are fasting when they get their lipid panel? 
most. Uh, yeah, I, that certainly was me uh, until I saw this study, and now it's not so much me, and that's why I'm bringing it up. This was a paper in this past year in pediatrics, and uh, it is significant because fasting is, you know, it's not the end of the world, but for a 16-year-old getting in in the morning before school or in the summertime before noon uh, is not necessarily an easy thing for the parents to, to get them there. And so you want to at least make sure that it's worth the battle if you're going to fight it. And so the point here was to examine population level differences in pediatric lipid levels depending on the duration of the fast. And they looked at different slices, fasting for eight hours, six hours, four hours. And I've just taken away everything but the not fasting at all and the fasting for eight hours or more, which is usually what we look for. And this was in a larger database. They compared the usual things you might compare in a lipid panel and controlled for the usual things you might control for. And the fasting time did have a negative effect on triglycerides. So the group that did not fast had higher triglycerides than the group that did. But look by how much? Seven nanograms per deciliter. Now, is that going to affect what you do with your treatment? Not so much. It's not going to affect me. Um, on the other hand, if it were 300 or 600, yeah, that would. So this has helped me just be a little bit less rigorous in fighting that battle if it's super hard for the parents to get that child in. Now, if you do get an elevated uh, triglyceride level, um, Morgan Meyer, who works with me, she's a PA in our group, um, just had a patient this week who had an elevated triglyceride level around 600. And so the first thing was, well, let's get him to fast and see what's happening. And the flip side is true, too. The chances are it's not going to change because the fasting isn't the issue. On the other hand, this child may have mainlined six Big Macs an hour before taking that blood test, and it might. So that's the first thing to check uh, when that happens. But I don't fight that battle as uh, hard as I used to. So what about cutaneous reactions associated with stimulant therapy for ADHD? unbelievably prevalent use of these medications. As you know, I imagine every day in your practices, you see patients on Ritalin, on uh, a long list of these medications, Adderall and the like. And this was a patient, the photograph is actually a patient of mine, the publication regrettably is not, uh, but this was a patient who uh, has an asymptomatic erythematous progressing to violaceous to blue uh, toe. Uh, without the usual triggers uh, of cold that you might think if pernio came to your mind, um, but, and was otherwise entirely fine, no other systemic illnesses at all, was taking Adderall and had been for about six months. Uh, took the Adderall away, went off. T gave the Adderall back, came back. Uh, this is a pernio, probably given the fact that it's not cold triggered, it may or may not be proper to actually call it pernio, but at least, the very least, a pernio-like both histologically and clinically, reaction to stimulant medications. Now, these are vasoactive medications. It's not a wild stretch of the imagination to think that it could cause a skin reaction like this, and they do. As I said, that photograph is my patient. I've had three or four kids uh, with this crop up, and it's like the abuse and phytophotodermatitis, like the erythema abigni. It's a really nice workup to avoid. Uh, pernio, a blue toe in a child is going to lead to some, uh, some significant testing unless you have a, a better explanation. I took out one slide that's probably in your handout about, in the interest of time, about stimulants and AGEP 
acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis. If you haven't seen it, it's usually medication triggered, typically antibiotics, but it can be a number, including stimulants. A diffuse pustular eruption, which also uh, makes one worry for infection, for pustular psoriasis, for a lot of things that may well be due to the stimulant. So another one to consider. Well, what about the filagrin story? It's kind of sweeping the, the pediatric dermatology world just because the implications have been so uh, immense. But how does it really affect our practice? Do you have to start ordering filagrin tests on your patients now? That's the question I hope we'll, we'll cover now. So first of all, very briefly, what is filagrin? It is uh, in the EDC, the epidermal differentiation complex. It's a protein which, when absent, as you might imagine, can kind of create a sieve-like effect in your skin, essentially, and potentially allow uh, in ingress of allergens, potentially allow increased susceptibility to infections. And so that's what filagrin does. And in the past few years, it's been discovered to be linked to an amazing uh, number of things. It's been linked to ichthyosis vulgaris, the photo you see there, for a number of years. But since 2006, it's been shown that atopic dermatitis and the susceptibility there too is, is quite linked uh, to filagrin. Look at the other list of medications. Those two kind of make sense for the reasons we talked about. Well, what about asthma? Filagrin's not even expressed in the respiratory epithelia. How could that be? Again, perhaps epicutaneous sensitization and the impact of that on respiratory sensitivity may have something to do with that, but it's really not known. But what is clear is that filagrin mutations not only seem to be linked to these conditions, but can be linked to more severe presentations of these conditions. So what does it all mean? You know, not so much. Patients with atopic dermatitis can have abnormal filagrin expression even without the mutation in the gene, just because of the inflammation. You treat with topical steroids and that filagrin expression normalizes. So it's not, I don't think we can make too much of it now, and I don't think we should test for it, and I rarely do. If I have a savvy parent, oftentimes working at Microsoft, oftentimes uh, being way much more on, up on the literature than my chief resident, um, I, I will go through this with them, and if they say, you know what, I've learned that this filagrin mutation, if we have it, may mean a more severe uh, risk for asthma and a severe presentation for asthma. And I want to be more aggressive in treating it. If I know that, fine. Uh, they've got the means uh, and they can treat for it. But as far as the here and now for patients other than that, I just educate. I let them know about it, but I don't test in uh, many at all. If you want to test, that's a way to do it, and that's the cost. GeneDX.com is a, I have no interest, stock, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite a nice website if you haven't been to it, not just for filagrin, but for most all testable uh, genodermatoses. And in, in the end, oftentimes, most of these tests are just a little buckle swab, and you send it off in an envelope. So it's super easy to do. So I mentioned my bias a little earlier with the barrier creams, or so-called devices. Now, that's a really cumbersome term, I think. Why, why are these things called devices? Uh, things like Epicerum, Atopoclair, Mimics. Why are they called devices? The reason, the definition is that they just stay on the skin. They don't have any metabolic interaction with uh, receptors inside the skin. That's kind of the idea. You know, I think it's kind of a silly term. The reason I think it's important 
and what, what you should take home from that idea of a device is they are not studied anywhere nearly as rigorously from a safety standpoint as topical steroids, as things like Protopic or Elidel, and I should say Tacrolimus or uh, Pimecrolimus. Um, I will try to use the, the, the non-brand names as requested, but I oftentimes think that requirement in this context is a little silly because if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I will, I will try and uh, work, work within those constraints. Uh, variety of active ingredients in these products, um, a variety of prices ranging from the expensive to the uh, illicit drug expensive. Uh, these can be kind of crazy. And so keep that in mind. Um, there's literature support. This is specifically studying a topical air versus vehicle and shows that it helps. Uh, it can, uh, and it can help more than its vehicle. Does it help more than trimcinolone? Uh, that's the question we need to know. Does it help more than hydrocortisone 2.5%? Uh, it's not that helpful, I don't think, to know that it helps more than its vehicle. So I, I think uh, those, those are called smart emollients oftentimes. Uh, I think the dumb emollients are, are smarter in most patients. Uh, look at the prices there. Um, if you look at that list of both ointments, uh, lotions, and creams, none of them are in nearly as expensive, and most of them work every bit as well. Just as a personal aside, again, I have no stock or interest, the bottom three, other than a patient who can use an ointment, like Vaseline, use the ointment. On a hot summer day on the East Coast now where it's baking, you cover a child with Vaseline, uh, that's not so happy. Uh, so you're gonna wanna have, you have flexibility for what moisturizer you use and when you use it. And when you wanna use a cream, those bottom three are the ones that I recommend to most of my patients. Just because ease of use, I can get a teenage boy to use them sometimes so they're not super greasy. Um, and so I, I like those uh, most of all. This was a study this past year that asked that very question. You know, well, how good are these things compared to one another, not compared to vehicle? And it was a very short study, and it compared a Topiclair and Epicerum, two of those expensive ones, to an over-the-counter petrolatum-based emollient like Vaseline. And there was no difference. Again, a small study, but it jibes with my experience and admittedly my bias, as I said earlier. So it must be true. So when do I prescribe these things? Rarely, basically. Uh, again, kind of the, the patients of means who are terrified of steroid phobia. And that's not a small segment of the population, as you know. And so let's address that. What at steroid phobia, there, there have been studies this past year that looked at a French group. 80% expressed concerns about this. Up to a third, it impacted how they treated. Ten, a decade earlier in Britain, same more or less number. So this is a stable fear over time. And so I think if you're seeing a patient back and they're not getting better, we're first like, oh shoot, do we need to use a stronger steroid? Oh shoot, are they infected? I, yeah, think about all those things for sure. Make sure they're using the product that you're giving them. Make sure that they're not uh, overwhelmed by fear and steroid phobia and just not using it because of that. And I think trying to preempt that on the front end by treating the steroid phobia with education and empowering the parents, just saying, oh, it can cause thinning of the skin, see you later, is not helping them. Uh, they can read that. They can Google that and find out, oh, thinning of the skin and see the most god-awful photograph on the planet of, as an example of thinning of the skin, and then that's the norm for, their, for them, and they're not gonna use the, the product. On the other hand, if you take them through and say, okay, this is what thinning of the skin looks like. These are the aspects of thinning of the skin that are reversible, and these are the aspects that are not. You're going to empower them 
to say, okay, you know what? I'm gonna be able to see this before it happens and I'm gonna be able to stop it before there's a bell that can't be unrung. And that's really helpful, I think. The touch test, what do I mean by that? You can see the bottom photograph there is a patient with post-inflammatory hypopigmentation. So they've had eczema, the eczema's gone away, now it's just a little discolored. To a parent, that's abnormal. Number one, they're gonna keep treating it with steroids if they don't have steroid phobia, because it looks abnormal. That's going to risk actual thinning of the skin. Number two, if they look at it and they say, oh my gosh, that's due to the steroid. You look at a package insert on a steroid and it says hypopigmentation. So that's going to feed their fear. So what I say is, if you close your eyes and you can't feel it, don't treat it with steroids, treat it with moisturizer. If you can feel it, it's red and it itches, just treat it with steroid. That's going to give them a very palpable, tactile uh, way to hopefully minimize that steroid phobia. Then you just take them through. I take them through on my own skin, sadly for the child. I show them that telangiectasias, little fine blood vessels. Those are the first signs, totally reversible. The next thing I should point to the back of my hand on say 48 years of sun damage, skin looks like this. This would look really weird on your kid. This is reversible, this kind of papery thin skin. The next step would be a stretch mark. Everyone knows what that is. It's a scar and it's not reversible. So that kind of gives them the continuum of thinning of the skin and empowers them to never get towards that right end of the spectrum. So just to kind of sum this up and put all of those products on the same page with their prices, including the steroids, including uh, Elidel and Protopic, Pemecrolimus and, and uh, Tacrolimus, that's all right there. And so the point being, I, I think of moisturizers and the devices on one side, and I compare them in terms of e efficacy on that grid, and on the other grid, I compare the steroids and the topical immunomodulators and compare them in terms of prices in my own mind as I decide how to use them, and I would recommend you do the same. So how about steroid use around the eyes? That's always uh, something that I, just gives me angst. Um, sometimes we need to do it. Um, oftentimes, I prefer to use things like the pemacrolimus and the tacrolimus because they don't have the risk of atrophy and they don't have the risk of cataracts or glaucoma, and so that gives me a little bit of latitude to use them there. As I said, uh, uh, Morgan and my patients are very limited means. They oftentimes can't afford those products, and their insurance companies will not pay for them. And so we're kind of between a rock and a hard place, and so we have to uh, kind of grin and bear it and prescribe these topical steroids. So is there anything in the last year that either makes me worry more about that or less? And this was a paper. This is all in your handout. Um, so don't worry about all the fine uh, print there. I'm just going to say, and we don't need to parse the details of the study except to say, First of all, remember that there are ocular complications that go along with eczema itself, not necessarily the steroids. So it's really important, therefore, to, eat, to document those potentially before you ever prescribe anything so you don't necessarily have a problem linked to a treatment that you gave when it may have already been there. One of those is keratoconus. That's a graphic presentation both a patient with and a cartoon of keratoconus. You don't need an ophthalmologist or a slit lamp exam to see that. Just look at the patient in profile. Keratoconus is one of the minor diagnostic criteria of atopic dermatitis. It's not common, but it's real, and it's worth documenting when you see patients to make sure that then treatments you give aren't uh, artificially linked to the problem. Same thing with cataracts. Cataracts themselves can be linked to atopic dermatitis due to the oxidative damage, presumably, of the inflammation on the lens and you don't need a slit lamp exam to detect a cataract. So think about these things as you uh, see your patients with atopic dermatitis.
Now, this study looked at patients that were using, these were adult patients, mind you, using strong steroids. Look at that, class three, class four steroids on the eyes for four days of the week for month after month after month. They did not see significant problems. So it was interesting to me, there was also a study that looked specifically at cataracts. And remember, there are also specific findings of cataracts associated with atopic dermatitis for the reasons we described. Cataracts are a risk factor of systemic corticosteroid therapy, so document that as well if patients have been on prednisone. But the take home of both of these papers was that in general, yes, we have to be cautious. No, I do not recommend using class three or class four steroids in the eyes for four days out of the week for um, months at a time. If I use a steroid at all around the eye, it's over the counter or it's class six, the desinides, the acclimatazones, the hydrocortisone 2.5%. I will use them with the same caveats I use on the skin, twice a day for a couple weeks if you need to, and then you will enforce a break not a limit. That's something that patients come to me all the time from pediatricians saying, well, I got this tube that's yay big to treat the body, and they told me not to use it for more than five days. And that's, atopic dermatitis doesn't go away in five days. This will cover your pinky. So that's really not a practical solution. So what I will say is rather than limits, you can't use this steroid ever again, I will say you have breaks. And after X amount of time, and you come to your own comfort level with that, I usually say two to three weeks of daily use, either daily, once daily, or twice daily, then I want a day off for every day that you use it. Now, if that's a week on, week off, if that's two weeks on, two weeks off, or it's you know, three days out of the week, that's gonna seriously limit the risk of side effects if you're using an appropriate strength steroid on an appropriate strength age and body part. So that's kind of the, the point that I make there. So if not steroids, then what? Um, we've been talking uh, kind of obliquely about the topical calcineurin inhibitors, the tacrolimus and pemacrolimus. This is a paper in April or May uh, this, this year, just a few months ago, that did a comparative effectiveness look at these products in terms of their efficacy, their safety, their cost of uh, effectiveness, uh, and their impact on quality of life. And just to summarize, in terms of efficacy, tacrolimus, protopic, was about the same efficacy as a class three or class five steroid, somewhere in there, trimcinolone. And that jibes with my experience on the trunk. Actually better um, than uh, over-the-counter or class six steroid on the face, which as I said, are the ones that I would use. So not only are they safer around the eyes, they're more effective around the eyes. It's such limited body surface area. If you're only using them around the eyes, systemic absorption of any measurable degree, and therefore concerns about the black box warning and all of those issues are pretty much mitigated as well. So if you can get them, I think those are great products to use around the eyes. Pemecrolimus was not as effective as tacrolimus, so Eladel not as effective as protopic uh, for moderate to severe AD. In terms of safety, um, there was less atrophy. They're not atrophogenic, so that's not a shocker. Um, there were more application site reactions. They stung where they were applied. And there was an equivalent infection risk. I think that, that was helpful, because one of the big concerns about these is, is did they increase the risk of eczema herpeticum? And they didn't, at least in this study. Long-term safety, that's the black box question, still is unanswered. So you need to discuss it. If you prescribe these things, you need to discuss it. But it doesn't mean that you can't use them. So what's the most underutilized effective treatment for atopic dermatitis? Wet wraps, bar none. And they're underutilized in part because they're hard to do, 
and I'm not going to parse this study for interest of time, but I just want to put it on your radar screen if you don't use them. One reason you may not use them is they're hard to describe. They're hard for the patients to kind of get a, get a, get a grasp on. That's why that bottom bullet point, eczemacenter.org, www.eczemacenter.org, is put out by UC San Diego. Wonderful information about eczema, period, and video tutorials on how to do a bleach bath, how to do wet wraps. So you can say, you know what, go home, look at this, come back, ask me questions. It will shorten the amount of time you have to go through on how to use these things. They still may be hard for the parents and the child to do, but they are incredibly effective. And the last point I'll make about wet wraps, Julie Francis is a dermatologist in Seattle here, and she taught me this carrots for compliance. What does that mean? If I'm going to do wet wraps, it's no fun for the kid. It's just plain and simple. It's no fun for the kid. I rarely do the wet pajamas overnight because that's just god-awful. It, it's helpful, uh, but it's really hard. And so if they can do it, great. If they're really severe and you got to do it, you got to do it. But more often than not, I'll try to get an hour or two of the wet wrap, and that's an hour or two that that child can play video games or can watch a movie or do things that are otherwise limited uh, by their parents. So there's something they're like, wet wraps, oh man, okay. Uh, so there's something for them. Uh, when they are going to be doing this. So what about infections and atopic dermatitis? Let me just make sure that we're where we are in time. Okay, so we're doing okay. Staph superinfection. So we think about, or I should say bacterial superinfection, we immediately think about staph, and we should. What we don't always think about, and we should, is strep. So strep can infect atopic dermatitis as well. Now, what does it mean? What are the differences? All of these bullet points are in your handout except one, and that's right down there under strep positive patients, New York Times 7, 11, 12. That would have been yesterday. If you go to, if you, any of you got the New York Times yesterday, or you can certainly search it, there's a wrenching case of, I think he was a 12-year-old boy who fell in PE or fell playing and got a scratch on his arm, ended up having strep in that arm, went to the emergency room because he was feeling terrible throwing up, had a lividoid type of rash that was either ignored or overlooked, uh, went, was sent home from the emergency department, went back the next night and essentially was dead 24 hours later from sepsis. So this is a good example of this point, that if you have strep in the skin, bacteremia is a greater risk than if you have staph in the skin. There was a New England Journal CPC uh, about a year ago, um, not even a year ago, I don't think, where there was a patient, a 30-year-old woman, who uh, had an abscess, which was MRSA, on her thigh. She went to urgent care. It was treated appropriately. It was drained. It was cultured. She was put on antibiotics and lost a follow-up, either for whatever reason. And about a month later, came back in with just disproportionate, she fell, that's what brought her back in actually, she fell, and went to the emergency room because she had disproportionate aches for the fall. And she went back in and a day or two later, she was dead from MRSA sepsis. And so the point of that, that case was, that was staph, this is strep. The point of that case, which I thought was interesting, that I'm just bringing up because we started talking about it, is if you have disproportionate muscle aches, that, like the lividoid, lividoid rash in this child, may be clues that there's more than meets the eye. Uh, because all these children were, in that adult, they weren't as deathly ill as they, uh, they, they, as they actually were. They did not appear to be as deathly ill as they actually were, otherwise no one would have sent them home. So they were sent home, and yet there were clues that retrospectively might have helped. 
uh, avoid that sad fate. So these are things to keep in mind. In terms of what else is significant with strep, first of all, this is about the time of year I start seeing this. And it looks a little different. If you see that picture, you know, staph superinfection, it's, it's crusty, it's weepy, it's uh, not quite as discreet and angulated as these lesions you see here. And you might say, well, he just scratched those. Yeah, maybe. Uh, if you, you're able to see this patient in person, they don't quite look like pure excoriation. So the, the skin rash looks a little different and the implications are a little bit different. You need to think about post-strep uh, complications like glomerulonephritis, which you do not need to think about with staph. So it's just worth keeping in mind if you get this in culture, and as you see, 16% of the time, that may be all you get. Well, MRSA, we're all aware of MRSA. Um, this is a patient with uh, immunocomprom uh, not immunocompromised, immunocompetent patient with just incredible MRSA abscesses on the trunk. His neck looked like he had a goiter because there was an abscess uh, of MRSA. He did fine. They, he went, came in the hospital and did fine. The point of this slide is we talked earlier about staph being more common in patients with eczema. It is. MSSA. MRSA actually seems to be less common. So keep that in mind. There are actually now two papers that have shown that MRSA seems to be less common. So don't, if you see a patient with eczema who's super infected, you should culture it. See what it is. That's probably what you would do anyway. But don't just assume it's MRSA even in, in MRSA endemic areas. Infectious Disease Society, they just came out with new guidelines for treating MRSA. And so I think it's useful if you're not aware of these. And you can go to their website, idsociety.org, and they have a little app. There's something called a Ready Reader, which you can download, and you have all of their recommendations right on your handheld. And very easy to use, pediatric adult dosing, uh, soft tissue infections, abscesses, the, the, the work. So it's quite handy if you're not aware of that. Obviously, it's the ID Society, not the MRSA Society. They have recommendations for just about anything under the sun as well. Well, let's talk just a moment about bleach baths. Um, how many of you use bleach baths on a regular basis? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, that paper came out three years ago, and it's just uh, something that I'm, I should raise my hand to, because I, I do as well. Um, just a few points. You have your own style, of course. As I said, there are video tutorials on the eczemacenter.org if you don't, because you've been wondering. I don't know that you need a video tutorial on putting some bleach in a tub, but there it is. Um, however, I think there's some good points about bleach baths that are not necessarily intuitive. I've got a number of patients who now they've Googled it, they've done it, and they come in and say, oh yeah, I tried it when my, patient, when my, when my baby flared and they did horribly. It's not a treatment, it's a prevention. And keep that in mind. It's not something to start when the patient's doing poorly, it's something to do when they're doing well to prevent them from doing poorly. Because when they're doing poorly, they've got a lot of open skin, they've got a lot of broken skin, it's apt to sting. If they do not, they will not. And so I think that's a crucial point. How much? There's a formula for an adult, an adult-sized tub. Uh, ID Society says half a cup. They're not treating eczema patients. They're treating all patients. Don't put a half a cup. Uh, if you've got a full tub, a quarter cup. If you've got a baby, adjust accordingly, cap full. I say to parents when they're just getting started, you almost can't put too little. So I start really low, and I always rinse afterwards. Some places, such as ID Society, don't rec necessarily recommend rinsing afterwards. I always say rinsing afterwards. And that one point there is the parents will come in and say, oh, because when they, when they, if they've heard of it, fine. If they've never heard of bleach baths, and I say, okay, I would uh, like to institute bleach bath therapy for your sensitive skin child, I, I get the hairiest eyeball in the history of the world. And they, they're about to walk out on me, and I try to at least make it sound a little less objectionable 
by saying, you know, chlorine in a pool, Clorox, and it's not, so that, they're like, oh, okay, well, they chilled out, chill out a little bit. But then they say, some of them, well, little Johnny goes to a swimming pool and he flares, he does horribly. And so I will ask them then, well, does little Johnny, as soon as he gets out of the pool, rinse at the pool? Does little Johnny, after he rinses at the pool, moisturize at the pool? And if he does those things and pools make him worse, then maybe bleach baths aren't for him. But most of the time, that's not the case. They go home, they run around for half an hour, they don't moisturize at all, and then, yeah, probably chlorine is not going to be the happiest thing for their skin. The last thing that I'll say, the last two things, um, is chlorine asthmogenic. That was a paper that came out in the last year or so, and I actually heard about it. It was in the, um, either the public health literature or the um, pulmonary literature, and I heard about it on NPR. So if it's on NPR, your parents are hearing about it too. And so they're going to ask you about it. So I think it's nice to be armed with a response. And the studies so far suggest the answer is no, but there is this theoretical idea that it can be related to promoting or worsening asthma. So you can say, no, there's no evidence of that at this point. It's being further studied. What about bug bites? This was a paper that came out like in the last month or two that has nothing to do with bleach, bat, well, nothing to do with eczema or uh, skin infections in this country, but they were looking at how bleach baths affect biodiversity on the skin, the bacterial diversity on the skin. And what's the leap here to bug bites? Well, bacterial diversity, bacteria, affect odor on your skin. Odor affects chemoattractiveness to bugs. And what they found was that decreasing the bacterial diversity uh, or excuse me, decreasing the amount of bacteria on the skin, decreased the attractiveness to Anopheles mosquitoes. And so this had implications for malaria. And that was the study. But I have now, I plan to, in patients who are having recurrent problems with bug bites, because it's a big issue, it's summertime, and I'm sure you have your own strategies for dealing with that. One thing I'm gonna think about now is actually considering a bleach bath a time or two a week to change the bacterial uh, flora on that child's skin and see if that affects their attractiveness uh, to the bugs. So that's something that I have not yet tried because this paper just came out, but I'm going to consider it. So why is eczema herpeticum missed so often and what are the implications? This is a paper in pediatrics this year as well. Eczema herpeticum is a very significant infection. Um, this was a paper that looked at uh, a large multicenter retrospective cohort uh, that had confirmed eczema herpeticum. And their primary question was, if you miss the diagnosis and you don't start the acyclovir, how long is that gonna lengthen their stay in the hospital? And as you can see, if they missed for a day, about 11%, up to uh, about 100% if it's missed for up to a week. The other thing I want you to see is that 30% staph superinfection. That's really the point of bringing up this paper. Because if you look at that picture right there, this is little Johnny. He's got eczema. He's been in and out of your office with staph superinfection. You look at him at the doorway, oh gosh, here we go again. Uh, hopefully you won't do this, but it's happened. I've seen it a million times. Here's your, your Keflex. Here's your topical steroid. We'll see you back in a week. And yes, there's staph there, but if you don't parse the forest for the trees, if you don't look through that crusted plaque at the borders to see those little punched out erosions or those little grouped vesicles, you may miss the eczema herpeticum. So that's the point, is don't miss the viral forest for the bacterial trees, and let's look exactly at that child's picture. Yes, he's got plaques that are crusted that look super infected and are with staph, but then he's got those little punched out erosions, those little grouped vesicles. That's not staph. And usually the parents can give you a clue too. 
because little Johnny's on this roller coaster that the parents have been riding along as well. Usually when it's eczema repeticum, they're gonna say, you know what, something just looks a little different. Or Johnny's got a fever and he doesn't wanna eat this time. Whereas if you've got bacterial staph superinfection, yeah, they're miserable, they itch, uh, they're unhappy, but they're usually not having constitutional symptoms. So those are useful things to keep in mind because this is not a good thing to miss. So just again, compare the pictures. The left is staph superinfected, uh, just crusted, weepy, exudative plaques in the same distribution, but without the punched, punched out erosions and vesicles. And the right is the picture you just saw. So let's shift gears now to vascular anomalies. This is a picture of a colleague of mine, Jonathan Perkins. September on the left, March on the right. It's extraordinary. Uh, nothing but propranolol that we know of yet can do that. Uh, this is a child with an uh, ear, uh, peri-auricular uh, hemangioma, mixed superficial and deep. So there's a cherry red superficial component and a deep kind of volumetric component. That's the part that propranolol is so extraordinary for. In this case, it helped the, the color too. I, I don't expect that, nor do I much care. The parents do, but the kid doesn't until he's three or four. When you're this age, the kid doesn't give a hoot if he's got a red ear. But what I, the reason I don't care is because I know that ultimately the redness is probably going to get better with time, and if it doesn't, I can laser it away. I can't laser away that volume if that doesn't go away with time. So that's where you need to try and think about propranolol when appropriate. So just an update on propranolol. Um, it was first reported in 2008. Since then, there are probably by now 200 papers. And in kind of like bleach baths, it's become the gold standard for treating hemangiomas. I'll ask the same question. How many of you treat patients with hemangiomas with propranolol? Yeah, fair number, not too many. That's interesting. Um, just because like uh, the bleach baths, it's now become the gold standard. But you also don't need to send patients to a cardiologist for a bleach bath. So that may have something to do with uh, the decreased uptake of that treatment. And we'll talk a bit about that, and hopefully maybe some of you will come to a greater comfort level. So just to summarize, uh, these are all papers in the last year, which I didn't want to waste time going through the individual studies. So are, is propranolol better than steroids? Yes. Is it safer than steroids? Yes. Do they work for ulcerated hemangiomas? Yes, they do. And do they help hepatic hemangiomas? Yes, they do. So these are answers to questions of papers just published in the last year. But the kind of ongoing questions that have yet to be firmly addressed are how do you use it? There are many, many different protocols, and that may be why there's just only a smattering of hands that are using it regularly. Is it safe in the setting of face syndrome? For those who aren't familiar with that, that's posterior fossa abnormality, so organic brain anomalies, hemangioma, arterial anomalies, coarctation of the aorta, and eye and ear anomalies, and potentially endocrine anomalies. So a syndrome associated usually coincidentally with the acronym with facial hemangiomas, but they can be off the face. And finally, does the hemangioma have to be used in the growth phase? If you, if you have a patient who comes in and they're two years of age and they have a hemangioma that's bulky and looks yucky, and you're pretty sure that just waiting is not gonna make it go away, is it worth thinking about propranolol, or have you missed a window there, as with prednisone? Prednisone is antiangiogenic. If the hemangioma isn't growing, which is usually after a year or so, oftentimes less, sometimes more, but if it's not growing anymore, prednisone is useless. Whether injected or taken by mouth, it's useless. So is that true also of propranolol? Well, that's the problem, is there's so many protocols. Um, I left Boston Children's in 2009. Uh, we were admitting every patient to start propranolol, regardless of age, regardless of scenario. They still are there. 
we do not here. Um, so there's a huge variation on how things are done. Do you need an AKG? Do you need an echocardiogram? Um, so there's a big question, and that may have something to do with why not everyone's doing this. Hopefully, there's a publication pending. It's at Pediatrics Now, has not yet been accepted, that will allow consensus guidelines um, to guide uh, this treatment better. Here are the key points of the consensus guidelines once they finally get published. Pre-screening must include documentation of a normal cardiopulmonary exam. Now, does that mean you have to have an EKG? That was the source of a lot of debate. It does not. Does it mean you have to have someone who is comfortable listening to a baby's heart and knows what the norms are for a baby's heart and heart rate and blood pressure? Yes, it does. And now, if that's you, great. If it's uh, someone else, great too. For me, it's not me. <laughs> I, I, I involve our cardiologists always. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a preference. In terms of key points, in terms of initiation, if they're less than eight weeks of age corrected, the recommendation is going to be that they are admitted and started in the inpatient setting. That was also a source of great debate and actually not what we do here, notwithstanding the fact that Bob Busek, our cardiologist, is also on this panel who's coming up with the guidelines. So there's just a lot of discussion on what's right and what's wrong, but that's ultimately gonna be the conservative recommendation. We start relatively low and build up is going to be the recommendation. We start at full dose here, two megs per kg per day, and uh, go from there. And then optimal follow-up and monitoring is also under discussion. See where we are with time. We've got 10 more minutes before we can have some questions. So the key things to be aware of, bradycardia and hypotension, for sure. Um, those are natural. It's an antihypertensive medication. Um, it's usually not a significant impact there. You need to monitor it. They need to be, especially with first dose, need to be watched carefully. Um, but it's usually not been a big problem. Hypoglycemia, particularly if you've got a patient who has a surgery in the morning, they don't eat after midnight, then they take their propranolol dose at uh, 6 a.m., their blood sugar can nadir. Um, the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia, if you or I get hypoglycemic, we might get jittery and we might get diaphoretic. Well, what can you also take beta blockers for? I took three this morning, so I don't shake. So you might mute some of the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia with that beta blocker. So be aware of that. Um, less intuitive, sleep disruption, it's real. I've had patients say that their child sleeps better. I've had patients say that their child sleeps worse. Oddly, the former patients seem to like me more. I've had parents say that their child seems to be having nightmares. Literally, they seem they're sleeping, but they seem troubled. And so I think these things are real. So do be aware of that. And you can play with the dose. You can play with the TID versus BID dosing. There are a variety of ways you can try and, and address that, but be aware of it. Face and propranolol, that's that syndrome. That's, this is the child, so these facial hemangiomas, you can see that's already obstruct, they're causing that eye to get uh, the, the ocular aperture to become asymmetric, and that's a threat to vision, potential permanent visual loss on account of that. These are the patients you most want to treat quickly and effectively. With propranolol, there's also a theoretical risk of inducing a stroke in patients with face syndrome. So if you have a facial hemangioma larger than five centimeters, larger than five centimeters facial hemangioma, you should work them up before you start them on propranolol for face syndrome. Doesn't mean you can't use it, but if in fact they have arterial vasculopathy uh, and indeed um, aortic anomalies, those are the patients that are at the highest risk uh, for ischemic stroke. So what about that question of missing a window of opportunity for treating? 
Uh, this was a paper this past year that looked at patients as old as 10 years of age. One of the figures had a patient with a lip hemangioma that was just distorting the lip. It looked not so good, and they obviously wanted to do something about it. The treatment was going to be surgery, but some wise person said, well, you know what, let's see if we can start propranolol now, and at the very least make the surgery smaller, and that's exactly what happened. There was significant regression, but not complete regression, and they had to have a surgery, but it was a much smaller one. So keep that in mind uh, as a possible option for an older child. So surely there aren't other adult medications that can magically treat infantile vascular anomalies. That sounds like a leading question, and it is. Sildenafil, better known as Viagra, is, uh, has been shown in a paper in the New England Journal just this past year, um, this, this year in January, uh, to benefit lymphatic malformations. Like propranolol that was discovered serendipitously in France, the child had a heart problem. They also had a hemangioma. They were given propranolol for the heart problem. The hemangioma started disappearing and like, okay, eureka. This was a patient. Sildenafil Viagra has been used in babies, adults as well, for primary pulmonary hypertension. And so it's not as if this medication hasn't been used. It has and it, and it is, but it's just not been used for lymphatic malformations. And here you can see a patient who has improved. Let's look closer at that. If you look at the bottom 15-month-old uh, girl with three large upper back lymphatic malformations, they were sclerosed, so standard therapy. They got smaller. You can see the middle panel on the right. They got smaller with sclerosis, but didn't go away. Started on sildenafil for 12 weeks, and it just became a little bag of skin. The lymphatic malformation just essentially went away. Stopped the sildenafil, and it's got a little bit bigger, as you can see. So three patients in this study, it hardly constitutes proof, but like the propranolol uh, from a case report, sometimes is born the gold standard a few years later. So uh, what does it mean? Treatment for lymphatic malformations is abysmal. Uh, surgery, sclerosis, they're just generally not so good. Um, small ones, fine. Bigger ones, tough. So this is a really, really nice treatment gap to fill if, in fact, this ends up being real. So any other uses for Viagra in dermatology, mind you? Um, this is a 16-year-old female with uh, antiphospholipid antibody. Uh, syndrome. She was starting to get these appearing toes and was failing standard therapy with uh, calcium channel blockers, steroids, and immunomodulators. After discontinuing the, the nifedipine, she was put on sildenafil and got rapid pain relief and improvement of her symptoms, and the gangrene stabilized. So uh, this is another potential indication, and last but not least um, is, actually I thought I had another slide, but I took it out for time, was Raynaud's. Um, the bottom there. Ray knows there's a paper um, there at the bottom um, which uh, was in the journal circulation showing that Viagra can potentially benefit Ray knows if uh, that is an appropriate thing in an individual patient. So last few topics, onychomycosis. Let's say you are sure your patient has onychomycosis. So you're like, great, let's do a KOH. Darn it, KOH is negative. Well, at least we've got the gold standard, let's do a culture. Darn it, the culture's negative. Now what are we gonna do? Culture is the gold standard. It must actually, I must have been wrong. This isn't, this isn't fungal. How many times does that happen? A lot. So this is a paper that addressed that, that I think is really useful. So this paper was really asking the question, how sensitive, not just to, not just to KOH, but a culture. Not just one culture, but multiple cultures. So that's the question. They looked at adults, about 400 of them, and they did KOH and culture, and that was negative. So that sliced off, uh, so some of them were positive, that sliced off, sliced off a group of them. But in 148 of them, 147 of them, 
there were, they were still negative. So then what did they do? They took that group and they did another culture and then another culture. And if there were three negative cultures and a negative KOH, then they did PCR. And so they took it to an extreme, I'm sure very few of you do, I don't, I've never done that, um, to try and see how negative were those negatives. And in the end, 138 out of that 147 patients who had that initial negative KOH and culture were actually positive. These are dermatologists and dermatolog PA dermatologists who are making this diagnosis. That's a critical point because we see more of this. Our index suspicion of fungus, if we have it, is higher and I would presume better than someone who doesn't see much and doesn't necessarily have as much training in terms of identifying uh, a positive uh, clinical exam for fungus. What are the implications of this? Does this mean that every time you get a negative KOH in culture, just because you thought it was fungus, you should start antifungals? Not necessarily, but if you have a really high index of suspicion, don't absolutely dismiss treatment just because you got that negative gold standard one time. Now, does this mean if we take this to its logical conclusion that potentially we're gonna treat some patients with psoriatic nails, uh, with antifungals? Uh, it, potentially it does. And we see that all the time, patients who come in with nail psoriasis who've failed antifungals, uh, and they failed antifungals because it's not fungal. So this I give you just because this is such a common clinical scenario, and I think we give a fungal culture too much credit. Tinea capus is an id reaction. I'm sure you've all seen this. You may or may not have recognized it. We think about an id reaction in a patient like this uh, with allergic contact dermatitis to nickel, and then they get those, and so it's, oh, you know why they're getting this rash here, they're contacting the nickel. And so you tell the parents, you're like, great, that makes sense, why the heck are they getting these little itchy bumps here and on their arms? That's an id reaction. And you clear this, and all the rest goes away. There was no nickel contact here, that was just hypersensitivity. Same thing goes with tinea capitis. Either before or after treatment, frequently this happens, you start the griseofulvin and they start getting an id reaction. Oh gosh, it's an allergic reaction to griseofulvin. That's pretty uncommon. But it stopped, all of a sudden you gotta go to, you gotta go to Lamisil or Spornox, then you do blood, have to go blood work and you've gone down a big old rabbit hole when maybe they just had an id reaction to the tinea or the killing of the tinea by the drug. So keep that in mind because it's a pretty common phenomenon. We have just another moment to talk about a changing mole in a child. What does it mean? Does it mean the same thing as a changing mole in you or I? Not necessarily. So there was a paper this past year that looked at this, and the question is, are the ABCDs as helpful in childhood? And they're not. Does that mean we abandon them? It does not. Uh, but moles change in children, and that does not mean we have to biopsy every one. So let's talk a little bit more about that. First of all, scalp nevi. That's an incredible setup for overbiopsy. The ch children, especially fair-skinned kids, redheads, blondes, they, they get their first haircut of the year, and the parents are like, oh my god, because there's this two-tone mole. Oftentimes, we call them eclipse nevi. I'll show you a picture in a moment. It looks like a solar eclipse, because it's clear in the middle and darker on the periphery, but it's two tones. Unbelievably uniform, uniform central clearing, uniform tan periphery, but two-toned haven't been seen because of the hair, the hair covering it, next thing you know, everybody's freaking out and it's gotta be biopsy. Well, there's a picture of an eclipse nevi, and the lesson is that is a very normal variant in particularly the scalp of a fair-skinned child. 
And the lesson of this paper is that moles change in childhood. It does not mean that we can ignore a changing mole. It does mean that I would have a little bit higher threshold in a child with a uniform but atypical mole, perhaps factoring in all of the other things. They don't have two parents with melanoma at the age of 10. Uh, You've you got to figure in the whole context. But in a child here, otherwise, you look at the mole, you're like, wow, I'm not very worried about that. But darn, it looks atypical in terms of uh, two tones. You know, just think about this variation on normal moles and then empower, just like the touch test and the thinning of the skin, empower the patient, the parents. Because invariably, they have a relative or themselves who've had melanoma and it was called, oh, no, don't worry about it, it's just a mole. And that sticks with them. So you or I say it's just a mole, that may or may not reassure them. What will reassure them more is if you take a picture of that mole, you measure that mole, you give them a copy of that picture if you're able. Then they can go home and have some sort of ability to say, you know what, this really isn't changing. And if it is, gosh darn it, we're going to go in and get that, that taken care of. So the way I would approach a mole like this, the parent says, I, I, this is two tones, it's different, I don't remember this. I look at it, I think it's actually just an eclipse nevi, I'm not worried about it. I tell them I'm not worried about it, I measure it, I take a picture, I give a copy to the parents, and I see them back in two months. I say, if it's changing in between now and then, call me. If they come back in two months and it's behaving as benignly as it looked in the first place, then we're back to square one. Uh, watch and wait, follow up as needed. So that's, that's my approach with these. So in summary, um, lipid checks uh, you may or may not need to do. See Pernio, ask about stimulants. Uh, devices can help eczema, but may or may not be worth paying the piper. If you think about eczema repeticum, uh, treat uh, if it's on your differential. Also think about the staff that might be with it. Uh, Propranolol and sildenafil uh, are remarkable treatments. And if you're missing fungus, treat it. And that's what Seattle usually looks like. Thanks very much. And I think we have time for some questions. Yeah. Yeah, so the question for those who couldn't hear in the back was halo nevi in kids and the surveillance that goes along with that analogous to the eclipse nevi and how we need to, to follow them. So halo nevi, for those of you who have not seen them or not familiar with them, are a nevus with a depigmented rim, a halo of depigmentation around it. And presumably it's just an immunologic response to the melanocytes, which raises maybe what you're getting at the question, wow, there's an immunologic response to the melanocytes, do we have to worry about melanoma? Halo nevi in children should trigger a little bit lower index of suspicion for melanoma than it should in an adult, not unlike the eclipse nevi. Does it mean you have to forget about it? No. Look at the mole, look at the mole that's within the halo, just like you would examine any other mole, size, symmetry, circumscription. If it reassures you to look at it, then you should be reassured. Should you look elsewhere for signs not only of atypical moles? Yes. Should you look for signs of vitiligo elsewhere? Yes. If parents say, my child has a halo nevi, are they going to get melanoma or vitiligo? Probably not. Does that answer your question? Pretty much. What was the part that wasn't answered? Right. So um, the part that I may not have been as clear about was, does it mean you have to have increased vigilance with all of the nevi elsewhere because of what's happening with that halo nevi? And the answer is no. 
Um, you examine that mole, and if that one looks okay, that's the only mole halo nevus they have, then I have that child in the same category that I have them anyway. If they have an increased risk factor, such as family history of melanoma, I'm gonna follow them more closely. If there are other risk factors, I'm gonna follow those more closely. Just the halo nevus, does that kind of fall in the list of risk factors for melanoma in a child? No, I don't think so. Did that answer your question? Okay, do we have time for more? Okay, other questions? Yeah. Um, how, okay. um, how long did you um, see that perineal-like reaction after they started taking the medication? Yeah. yeah, did everyone hear the question? How long did, at, let me make sure I know the answer the question properly. How long after the medication was started did you get the perineal-like reaction? So in the paper that I quoted you, it was six months. I've seen it sooner than that. I've seen it more, so I've seen three or four cases. Shorter than that in all three. Um, closer, the earliest was, I think, a month, and then three or four months was the range of the other two. Okay. Thank you. So, yeah, sure. Other questions? Yeah. A uh, question about use of propanolol with the hemangiomas. Uh -huh. um, as far as just how long are your patients uh, inpatient when they start the the medication, how long does that last in the hospital? Um, how frequently do you follow them up? Um, and what kinds of follow-up tests do you routinely do for them while they're on the propranolol? Um, and then finally, how do you get insurance to pay for it? What process do you go through to get that approved? Right, so I hopefully heard the question just about the logistics of starting propranolol, essentially. And we actually don't treat many patients in the inpatient setting. We start almost everyone in the outpatient setting, but as I said, CHOP, Boston Children's still do. Um, when the guidelines come out, I think we're all gonna be obligated to feel like we have to treat those with corrected age younger than eight weeks uh, in the inpatient setting. In that case, they're usually in the hospital for two days. The medication is started. The blood pressure and the heart rate are followed very carefully. Even in the hospital, we're not doing blood sugar sticks, and so we're not doing that at home either unless there's a significant reason or reaction uh, to suggest we need to do that. In terms of the parameters that we follow, whether it's in the hospital or at home, our um, cardiologist will teach the parents how to check a blood, uh, to ch uh, take a, a heart rate, and we'll teach them um, how to monitor at home, and we're following heart rate at home. Uh, when we see them back in the office, which we do on a monthly basis, we are essentially, first and foremost, weighing them because they're gaining weight, and so functionally tapering the medicine if you don't raise the dose. So that's number one. Uh, we're not doing any blood work. We're just checking their heart rate and blood pressure, making sure it's within the parameters um, that were outlined when they were started. When they're started, we will start them in the cardiology clinic. We get a blood pressure at one hour, at two hours, at three hours. Then we have that in our chart to compare when they come back and we see how they're doing. And um, that's pretty much how we follow. In terms of insurance, how we get them to cover, that hasn't really been a problem. Um, and it may be because we're not in, in asking for inpatient admission. Uh, it may be more of a problem if you're asking for that, but we've not had issues with insurance coverage. That is your question? Okay. Other questions? Yes, I had one. Um, in terms, terms of molluscum, yeah. um, how do you deal if they have molluscum? Like I have a patient who's a two-year-old that gets them right on his eye, upper eyelids. Right. And I usually, you know, anywhere else I have like varicanth acid I use and that works fine. But mom is just so concerned that these are just going to spread if we leave them. And I'm just more hesitant because he's two and rubbing his eyes and everything like that. I just know what your suggestions were for that. Right. So facial molluscum uh, are a problem for sure because 
the treatment, my favorite treatment for molluscum actually is cantharidin. I don't know if you are able to use that. The FDA has been rattling its saber about the fact that it's not FDA approved, and so uh, many centers um, have had it taken away, ours being one, so we don't have that to offer anymore. I never used it on the face around the eyes anyway, so that's kind of a moot point for your question. But what do I use? Probably Retin-A or Aldera. Aldera is a brand name, uh, forgive me, Amiquimod. Um, and I will always let the parents know that Amiquimod is FDA approved for genital warts, otherwise that's a guaranteed phone call about three hours later. Um, but it is, especially in atopic patients for reasons that we don't yet understand, works pretty well for molluscum. Um, and it's expensive as you know what, and so it's, that can also, for many of my patients, is not an option, in which case I try Retin-A. Now, Amiquimod works because it generates interferons. Interferons are antiviral. Why does Retin-A work? Probably because it dries out the skin, just like your acne patients get very dry, and just irritates it, calls the attention of the immune system to what otherwise has just been ignoring this very superficial infection, and it just escapes immune surveillance. So you kind of lift the veil uh, on, on that molluscum so it's attacked. So that's probably what I do most of all. Some people do, I don't, because um, it just makes me nervous around the eyes. Some people actually around the eyes will take TCA, trichloracetic acid, put it on a Q-tip, or excuse me, a, a, a like a, what's the little thing you put in a thing? Something like that. Um, put it on a little toothpick. Good gracious. Um, put it on a toothpick and put it on the molluscum. And that can work really well. It just makes me a little nervous. So mollusca, uh, Retin-A and Aldera most of all. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, with regard to tacrolimus, the topical immune modulators, what's your black box spiel for parents? Yeah. Skinny of it? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a, everyone has their own unique style. And so what I will say, the question, if you didn't hear it over the microphone was, what about how do, how do I address the black box warning with parents? So first of all, I will say that I think it was an overreach. Uh, I, I am comfortable with the safety of these products, kind of like uh, the moles and everything else. The parents are then not necessarily going to say, oh, well, great. Well, if you think it's okay, it's all okay. So I, I try and justify that by saying, first of all, the American Academy of Dermatology, the Quad AI and an allergy group have come out with position papers saying that it was an overreach that it is a, they, these are safe products when used appropriately. Now, what is appropriate? I sh should say not in kids under two. They were never approved for kids under two. I will use them in select patients under two, much, much less now with the black box warning. But what I will tell parents, the kind of stylistic part of that that I will tell parents is I'll say, you know, when these came out in 2001, they were the first thing ever that did not have a steroid in it that really worked for eczema. So everyone was thrilled, parents, us, um, they were used like water, oftentimes before Vaseline. You were put slapping uh, protopic on these patients. And they were never meant to be used in kids under two. Kids under two, infants in particular, more relative to their mass is going to absorb systemically, and that's the worry. So the FDA came out with a black box warning in 2005, 2006 to try and stop that inappropriate off-label use in infants. That was the reason. There was no new data to suggest that it causes lymphoma or skin cancer, which is what the black box warning uh, is about, that was not available before they were approved. Um, when the black box warning came out, there have been a smattering of reports to the databases that say, oh gosh, this is a patient who, has, who developed lymphoma and they have a prescription by a database for one of these products. There's a good number of those patients who, when they've looked at those, actually never filled the prescription. 
but they were linked somehow because they had, had acquired the prescription. They never actually, uh, they had been written the prescription, but never actually had used it on their skin. So every study that's looked at it so far has been reassuring. It's a long-term question, though. So the way that I say is the question has not been answered definitively, and it will not be probably for 10 or 15 years. Now, they've been out now for 10 years or so, so we're going to start getting good evidence to answer that question. But what I will say is in the studies before they were approved, they were treating kids with 90% body surface area. 90% body surface area, they were never getting significant blood levels such as you would use in the transplant wards to induce immunosuppression such as you would see in the transplant wards where they get the post-transplant lymphoproliferative problems that are the theoretical problem here. So I try and tell them that when we're using it in small areas, when we're using it in places where the safety of the product far outweighs the safety of its alternative, steroids, when we're using it in a non-continuous way, using it for short periods, get them better, and then stop using it, when we're using it in alternating fashion, maybe the topical calcium inhibitor for a week and a steroid for a week, you limit the risks of both. When you're doing ways to limit the use overall, body exposure, age, uh, body site, it's a very, very safe category of medications, but ultimately the question remains unanswered. Does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions or do we have time? For uh, one more question? I'm just curious on what your thoughts are of using uh, Timolol on yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so Timolol, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's, it's topical propranolol, and it is a ready-made off-the-shelf product that ophthalmologists use for glaucoma. And there was a paper, of course, um, if it works systemically, you know, systemic steroids, topical steroids, why not think about it topically? And the first report that came out was, I think, in New Jersey, and it was a report of a patient that looked not unlike the picture I showed you of the face patient with an eye that was closing because of hemangioma. They used just Timolol, and lo and behold, the eye did better and looked fine, and the child did great. Don't do that. I don't do that. I think it's not, uh, there's not enough evidence that it works either in the literature or in my own hands that when the patient needs treatment, you choose Timolol. That patient needed treatment, they should have either been treated with prednisone or propranolol. On the other hand, if you've got a patient, and this is many patients, as I'm sure you're aware, yeah, you don't have to treat it, but man, the parent sure would like to. It's a super safe alternative. And you put one drop twice a day on the hemangioma, it's Timolol 0.5% either gel forming solution or just solution. Timolol 0.5% solution, one drop twice a day to the hemangioma. When we do it, we don't check heart rate, we don't check blood pressure, we send them neither to the cardiologist or the ophthalmologist. So in a, a hemangioma that doesn't have to be treated, I think it's a nice adjunct. Does that answer your question? Okay. Thank you very much.